This episode is in memory of my beloved uncle, Anthony Lean. Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. So I hope you're all having a good week. I've just booked my first trip of the year, which I'm so excited for. I'm heading up to Scotland at the end of May, I hope, doing a road trip through the Highlands uh, that I was meant to do last year. And over on my Instagram at Holly Rubenstein, I've been asking you where you're heading first on your travels as we ease out of lockdown. So the Bristol botanist, she says, I'm heading to the South Devon coast near to Hope Cove. Ha, I'm actually looking at places to stay near there right now. I want to take my mum, who's actually coming up later on the podcast, so stay tuned for her. Rebecca Holloway says she's heading to Northern Ireland as soon as she can, and Ivy Manalang is looking forward to going to Ireland too. Rach Everett is off to Northumberland. Ruth Half is heading to the beautiful Forest of Dean in July. Oh, that's where Netflix films Sex Education, isn't it? It looks beautiful. Tinky T 77 says her first day will be at the Gower Hotel. Hmm, maybe that's the Gower in Hyde Park, or I see that there's also one in Swansea, so have a lovely time wherever you go. And N. Jolner is going on a family trip in the summer to Southwold. Oh, great shout. There are a few places I'd rather be than on the Suffolk coast in the summer. Lovely place. Well, those were just some of your messages. Thank you so much. I love hearing about your upcoming travels. And I just also want to say I've loved seeing some of you write your own travel diaries, your seven chapters. That has been so great to see over on your blogs and on Instagram. So do send them to me if, you, if you're doing those. It's really, really lovely. Right, let's get on to today's episode. I'm joined this week by one of the most established names in British luxury, the designer and businesswoman Anya Hindmarsh. Anya started her accessories business as a teenager, inspired by the leather bags she saw on her travels when she was in Italy. Within a few short years, her designs were stocked by some of the most prestigious fashion outlets around the world. And what I love about Anya is she's known for using fashion as a force for good. Back in 2004, her £5 white tote bags with the slogan, I'm not a plastic bag, written on them. Do you remember those? They graced the shoulders of A-listers everywhere, sparking a global frenzy with queues of over 80,000 people outside Sainsbury's shops trying to get their hands on the canvas bags. More recently, during the pandemic, she's worked with University College London to design a special holster for frontline NHS workers to wear. And her bags, you know, generally, they're just always so full of personality and put a smile on people's faces. So I spoke to Anya back in lockdown two, just to give you a bit of context. Obviously, we didn't really know that we were going into lockdown three, but I think that we're kind of talking about our positivity about future travel. And that can be applied right now, I hope. And just as fashion takes inspiration from cultures and destinations all over the world, so does Anya, whose travel diaries take us from Morocco and Myanmar to Japan, Italy and glamorous mystique. So let's hear from her now. Anya, hi Mush, thank you so much 
for joining me today on The Travel Diaries. How are you today? I'm well, thank you for having me. Oh, it's so my pleasure. So we're speaking as hopefully we're kind of coming halfway through lockdown 2.0. I mean, I don't know about you, but the pent-up wanderlust that I'm feeling right now, having not been abroad for, oh my gosh, nearly a, nearly a year. Oh, it's intensifying. How, how have you been missing travel? Well, I feel exactly the same. Funny, the first bit was um, so lockdown one was it was the weather was so beautiful here in London, and it was actually kind of a nice moment to sort of step off the mad merry-go-round. Obviously, there's nothing nice about COVID because it's been so hard for so many people. But but there was sort of it was sort of a novelty a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. Second one, I think, is tougher for sure. Um, I mean, we're so busy that it's hardly time to think. But I um I, I suddenly the other day sort of craving some North African sun, you know, on my bones. That's what I feel like right now. Um, and just yeah. that lovely thing when you take off on a plane and suddenly you feel far away and you just have some perspective. So, yes, I, I'm absolutely like you. I'm, I'm suddenly craving um, travel, which is one of my favourite things ever. But here we are. I've got to get on with it. So that's what I'm doing, head down. <laughs> it's something we're going to value just more than ever when we can do it easily again. Absolutely. That said, um, you know, I do feel... I've done so much traveling in my life and, and so lucky to have really traveled extensively for both work and um, it's really been my sort of greatest pleasure. I do feel a bit guilty about how much travel I do actually and it has made me stop and think a little bit about how easy I jump on a plane and how appropriate that is honestly from a sort of planet point of view. Um, so I think it will actually make me think a little bit differently um, and certainly with mm. what you can do on a Zoom call and um, perhaps I've had my fill and I need to sort of pass the baton a little bit is also going through my mind. So let's see how we end up but that's definitely something that I'm thinking about quite a bit. Mm, that's really interesting I mean from an individual point of view and from uh, an industry point of view I think most people have taken a step back like you like you say to reassess their views on the environment on sustainability it's given us all time to think about our perspective on, on a more macro level how do you think this time has impacted your perspective on the future of fashion and how fashion will work i think it's had a huge effect honestly um i mean you know they say never waste a good crisis and i reiterate there is nothing good mm. about covid it's horrid really horrid and there's been some frightening moments and some scary stories um but you know we have to face it and so therefore always try and grab the silver linings and try and you know do the good things that you can do i think from um from a fashion perspective the fashion industry frankly is incredibly old-fashioned and i think needs a massive shake-up and i think this um is doing that actually i think it's making people work um differently making people work remotely i think it's changing the timetable we've actually completely reset our entire timetable during this period and just decided it's crazy with this kind of mad world where people are going on sale no longer in january as it used to be but in now october so we've reset our entire timetable, which means we then deliver things that are season appropriate. Um, we're really trying to look at every aspect of our business and, you know, how we work. Not everyone needs to be on the tube at nine in the morning. That's mad. So let's just work you know, in an intelligent way and, you know, rethink. And um, and it's, it's nothing like a crisis to make you actually look at things in a way that you might not have done, you know, A, because you're too busy and you're in the normal sort of cadence of how you work, um, but also because you might not have been forced to. And it's, it's actually, it's a lot of, fresh thinking that comes out of these situations, I think. So so we're trying to sort of grab the positive and also try and, you know, do our bit. We did a lot of um, making of hospital gowns and supporting various different initiatives um, as we as we could. And so trying to use the sort of platform we have to um, to help out as well wherever we can. So so it's been a productive time and, and without a doubt fashion needs a rethink. And, you know, travel's a good example. I think nothing of getting on a plane and going to Japan, you know, for three days. But actually, is that honestly appropriate? 
um, mm. and um, can we do things differently? And I, I would say probably 25% we probably could. You know, it might not be everything for yeah. sure, um, but I think, you know, you can change quite a lot. Yes, yeah, exactly. I do think a work-life balance will definitely be more of a priority now having gone through this pandemic and out the other side hopefully right well I'm excited because we're going to get stuck into your travel diaries now Anya starting with chapter one at the very beginning which is your earliest childhood travel memory what would that be well the earliest memory I have of of travel was actually being in Marrakesh with my parents I was probably about I would think five or six and I think I remember because there's a photograph so I'm not quite sure if it's memory or what I've sort of taken them to do this photograph but I remember being quite scared in, in, in the sort of Medina because I didn't know there were very many small blonde girls um, and I remember you know, all the water sellers and all the the normal sort of lovely harassment that you get and I remember being quite frightened and sort of hiding hiding in my sort of mother's legs um, and um, and yet I remember how intoxicating it was and, and just the, the sound of the birds and those incredible blue skies and the you know, the bright orange fruits then all these oranges were in baskets you could buy sort of a basket of oranges like a closed container made of basket these are things that just felt very foreign all the oranges had leaves on them I remember well um and um it just felt different and exciting actually and scary at the same time uh and and that's a memory that that goes deep um, and I think is my parents traveled a lot and always sort of took us with them so it was a a nice early memory um, and I think that early traveling has always meant that I don't feel scared to travel I, I like I get a real kick out of being a bit out of my depth and in places where I don't quite understand what's going on I find that that's half the fun actually so that was probably my earliest memory. So they instilled a love of travel in you from an early age it sounds like. Yeah absolutely and I think it just gave us permission to you know to kind of you know get out there and, and go and equally I think it um you know, it still gives me such pleasure today when I'm, you know, standing in a train station in Japan and I can't read a single sign. I've got to sort of somehow find my way around it where I'm, you know, in some <laughs> yeah. um, place where it feels really foreign and I don't know, you know, can't read the menu or um, can't, you know, don't have to sort of get money out of it, sort of an ATM. And of course, the world's become so much more sort of homogenized now. And in some ways, that joy is quite difficult to find. And actually, I think I've, I've definitely searched that out in my, in my sort of trips for, for pleasure, because it's the bit that kind of I don't know, it gives you a bit of perspective on who you are, which is no one, <laughs> you know, you're just a tiny cog. So it's, it's, I find it, that's a really exciting thing and definitely was instilled from a young age. Mm. Marrakesh, I mean, there's just something about the light there, as you say, the colours, the vivacity of it all that I, I know has had such an impact um, on the world of fashion. Um, is it somewhere that you've returned to for inspiration in your later life yes and no I mean it's obviously I love I love the fact in Marrakesh that you can there's so many trades you know you can find people who can work metal or can work ceramics or um you know can actually do amazing embroidery or you know, do incredible block printing you know they can weave baskets I mean there's so much you can do so it's quite exciting in the sense you can have an idea and, and put it into action literally within the in the Medina you know there's so many people so that's really exciting mm. um for me, I think it's more about a place that I go away to have a break to clear my head. Really. And I think there's something about the, you know, that intoxicating mix of the call to prayer. And as you say, those blue skies and the, the sound of birds is, is breathtaking. It's really, it's deafening, actually. Um, and so it's just a place that I just, it gives me, it's, it's, I suppose, the closest place to the UK that feels properly foreign, almost biblical. Yes. Uh, and that's very exciting. When you go there, where do you, do you stay? Is there a particular spot that you like to visit? In Marrakesh itself, I normally stay in Elfen, um, and then we tend to head out quite quickly to um, sort of foothills of the Atlas Mountains. There's a um, place called the Kasbah Beldi, um, which is um, just very, very simple. It's like it's really like lots of little 
farm buildings actually. Um, and it's on the edge of the um, the, the, the barrage, the, 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 um, the dam there. So there's a sort of dammed lake. So there's a sort of sense of seaside in the funny way. I think a lot of the Marrakeshis go out there for the weekend. And there's some really fun restaurants that feel almost a bit like sort of Saint Con Saint, and they're incredibly chic and, and right on the sort of slightly drying out barrage lake. Um, but it's it's really cool, actually cool and dusty and and, and fun and um, and very simple. So everything that sort of appeals to me. But I love it. We always ask them to put on the hammam. So the night we arrive, we have a wonderful hammam sort of scrubbed within an inch of our lives and, um, Amazing. and then sort of hot hot um, tagine um, by the fire where we read our books. It's really relaxing and then go on big hikes the next day. So it's just a really lovely place. It's somewhere we go often. Sounds wonderful. So am I right in thinking that your vision for becoming a handbag designer and accessories designer started at a young age while you were still at school. I think I read that you sketched a, a handbag shop with your name above it while you were still studying. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I was actually given a, um, a one of my mother's old handbags when I was about 16. And I remember sort of viscerally how it made me feel, um, you know, as in the appreciating the beautiful craftsmanship and the leather. And when I wore it, it sort of, sort of changed my mood. I remember being very fascinated. And so I, I really wanted to um, to design. I knew I really clearly wanted to design leather goods. Um, mm. And um, and actually an, an old um, alum came back to talk at school and she was in the fashion industry. And I remember um, after that meeting going and, and drawing a sort of my own shop with my name on it and all my handbags in the windows. So I was pretty clear about what I wanted to do, which is great because it it's means incredible. you can kind of go straight after it in a way. Yeah. So it was love at first sight, really, when your mother gave that to you. It was something that you hadn't considered previously. And then when when you got it, it was it like a light bulb moment? Yes, I think so. I mean, you know, obviously, as a young girl, I'd always loved fashion. and um, But I, it was the craft that inspired me in a way. And the, um, the sort of the, the combination of the craft and the, 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 you know, they always say that you know, an actor never gets into the role until they put on the shoes of the character and I think in a way handbags are a bit like that they feel quite mood altering I think um and they're just things I think women also love to kind of cover things and to to sort of compartmentalize things and organize things and have what they need with them it's a sort of other maternal sort of instinct in a way and um mm-hmm. and I, I think that's what handbags are actually but there's it's so that it's making things work and taking things with you but also the beauty of the craft um, something that you can really sort of appreciate so that that's still really inspiring for me now that's amazing well so chapter two is the first place that you fell in love with where would that be um probably actually a place called Cap Ferrat which is on the um sort of between Nice and Monaco in the south of France and <clears throat> my parents had a little place there sort of most of my life and France was quite different then actually a people didn't didn't travel as much so it was always it felt rather glamorous France was a rather different place uh, in those days and it was sort of Grace Kelly and David Niven and it just felt rather um fascinating I think France is, is not quite the same at the moment actually it's sort of I don't know why it's a bit different but um it was a place that uh, I have lovely memories of for lots of holidays and um walking around that cap in fact I got married on that cap actually and kept around the little oh. church there and um and so it's a sort of space and a place that um, means a lot to me for, for lots of memories, but very much all my childhood um, holidays, really, and, uh, and, and getting married. Oh, how lovely. And is it a place that you go back to still now? I do still go back there, less actually, in a funny way. I think just because my children are at an age where we can now travel more ambitiously, if you like. Um, obviously not right now, but normally. Um, and I just have a real sort of urgency to the fact that 
because my eldest is 30 and my youngest is 17 that I haven't got long where I've still got them all together. So I've been trying to do more sort of ambitious trips, trips where they, they get that fear that I spoke about before of um, being out of your depth and, and being somewhere very foreign. And obviously, you don't quite get that in the south of France, um, but they, they know the south of France very well. And it's a lovely place, you know, just for a weekend or, or a quick week. But we've been trying to still go further afield. So going back to this time when you were at school, you'd, you'd been given the handbag, you sketched the shop, and then you have this incredible entrepreneurial story where you went off to Florence, the home of leather. So can you tell me a little bit about that trip and what then happened afterwards? Well, that trip was very special to me. Um, I was 18. I knew I wanted to kind of go to Florence, which was the home of, of leather, the home of craftsmanship, the home of what I wanted to immerse myself in. And um, I set out to Italy. I, mean, I didn't really know. I hadn't been to Florence before, and I didn't know Italy that well. I'd spent much more time in France. And, um, but I had this very romantic sort of room of the view kind of version of it in my head. Uh, mm-hmm. And I checked into my pensione, which was... Um, kind of another experience altogether uh, and met sort of friends I started just doing an Italian language course and then sort of got a bit more into the, the sort of what was going on and work and then started to work with factories and start my business um, and it just was intoxicating actually I think you know the, the ancient medieval city you know the Ponte Vecchio the, the language the food um, just every aspect of, of, of Italy was um, and still is um, a complete passion of mine really um, so it was the sort of start of a love affair. And I think a place that you discover on your own is always the place that you hold kind of quite dear in your heart. It's, I think mm-hmm. there is something about that, that first place that you, you know, you go to alone. Um, and just walking the squares and, um, you know, seeing how they manage the seasons and the food and how they deal in business and how it's all about relationships and families and how all the businesses are not just all in one city, like they seem to be in so concentrated in London, you know, it's really spread around and, and the incredible craftsmanship. I mean, just the fact that they still make things is really exciting. You know, you have an idea and the next day you can go and see the first version of it and you then go back and forth and contribute ideas and, and, and the passion for making stuff is, is just, you know, in their bones really. Um, so I, you know, I love Italy and Florence is absolutely the sort of, I mean, I've just done I mean, countless trips to, to, to Florence and it, you know, it's a very special place in my heart really. How old were you when you made that first trip on your own? I was 18. Yeah, I was 18. So really, I mean, that is really young. And and you went there to be inspired originally? Was that the incentive to go there? Well, I sort of, um, I wasn't going to go to university. I knew that wasn't for me. I wanted to kind of crack on and start my business. So I knew that was the home of, of if I wanted to learn, I guess that was my university. That was where I learned. Right. Um, so I needed to go there, but I needed to find my way. And so I started really with language and then started with the design I had in my head and, and found factories literally through the yellow pages, the fashion new generally. That's incredible. Um, and started working then with a the craftsman and then started bringing back bags and selling them to stores and, and sort of, you know, we still work in Florence today. So it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's very special and it's lovely I always think it's such a privilege you know through work it's I to travel a lot for work and exploring cities and places as a person working versus being a tourist is really exciting so in Japan I spent a lot of time in Japan and Mm -hmm. going into offices and all those back rooms and department stores and sitting down and having those hilarious meetings with the sort of the, the you know the endless jade sort of desk sets and things that the funny little quirks the smoking rooms and back of offices and there's endless gray carpets from the 50s and just things that you wouldn't see if you were being a tourist it's a real mm-hmm. privilege i think and the same in, in italy that you know you, you you see how they drink their coffee and that 
they always have a spending machine with little tiny cups and how they always have about five sugars and it's more sugar than coffee and, and, and <laughs> you know, what they do for lunch. You know, so it's a very real introduction, actually. You're getting under the to, skin of it. Exactly, exactly, which is, which is really exciting, I think, for me. It's really exciting. Mm. And my understanding is that you then had a, had this bag that you created at the factory and then you persuaded Harper's and Queen magazine to feature the design and then it, kind of the rest was history? Well, so certainly I was out having started Italy knowing I wanted to, to design. I started designing, had some samples made and brought them back to the UK and I had a friend of a friend who had a stepmother who um, ran the office department of Harper's and Queen in those days. Um, and I approached them and said, you know, would you like to sell my bag through through the, the monthly offer they did in the magazine? And amazingly, they said yes. Um, so I set about placing an order um, and fulfilling that order through their their orders. And that was very much the sort of start of my sort of taste for business, if you like, and then started yeah. next selling to stores and rich, literally sort of knocking on the door of, of various um, stores. Joseph was one of my first ever um, customers um, and then selling you know, then to the States and Barneys and Bogdors and, and just sort of growing that wholesale business very much with my suitcase going full of handbags and just going and seeing people. So it was pretty hands-on. And then going back to my home desk, which was my kitchen table, and then trying to place all the orders and make the new samples and then deliver them, do the invoicing. And, you know, you learn every part of the business. It's a great way to learn. It must have been a very steep learning curve. No, it was a baptism by fire. At times, really hard, actually. All my mates were at university and it felt quite lonely at times. And there were periods of time when things were being made where you know there wasn't much to do so you felt a bit sort of at sea but you just have to kind of keep your head down and not give up I think that's the the secret (laughs) which I didn't thank god yeah absolutely incredible story because by the age of was it 19 you had your first store I I think it might have been a little bit later than that but it wasn't long afterwards and I opened a first floor store um which uh I can only afford the, the first floor. Um, and it became our office and our sort of atelier and our little store, uh, and which was an amazing sort of turning point because you started meeting customers. So obviously when you're selling yeah. through Joseph or through Barnes, you don't get the direct feedback. Whereas if you have a store, people come in and say, actually, I love this, but I'd really like this to be a bit different or longer or shorter or less heavy or whatever it might be. And you you, you learn. So it was a really nice way to to meet customers. Um, and uh, that was that was a, an important moment, I think, of, of doing your own retail. Mm. Yeah. So let's pause there for a moment, moving on to chapter three, which is the place where you learn the most about yourself. Where would that be? I think I'd probably cover this because actually Florence was on my list of where I learned the most about myself. Because I think um, where you travel on your own, you tend to um, be much more sort of reflective. Um, and obviously, I learned about myself and about what my passion was through sort of just following my nose, really, by being there. So um, that was, I think, the place I learned the most about myself and, and still do every time I go back because, you know, you're you're really pushing your creative ideas and boundaries and you're um, working with craftsmen and, and learning um, a lot and in turn learning a lot about yourself. So I would pick Florence for that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. 
From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK. And in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels easier even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Those initial designs that you told us about were inspired by Italy. How, how, how have your travels influenced your designs um, beyond that? Which destinations have you found to be the most visually stimulating, would you say? Well, there's visually stimulating. And there's also, um, I think, you know, seeing things that give you ideas. So for me, in a way, that's almost more stimulating. So when you go to New York and you see, obviously, that people want huge bags because they want to wear their trainers to work and then they want to put their trainers in their bags and they want their bags to zip up because they feel nervous for security. You go to Japan, there's no issue at all of security. You can leave your bag five rooms away in a nightclub and no one would ever touch it. It's just no question you have nothing mm-hmm. stolen. Um, and they're smaller and they want smaller bags and so therefore there's you know so there's different requirements and you know the way people you know I was walking along the street the other day and saw the way someone was trying to kind of handle the mask and they didn't have anything to put it in it just makes you think actually how can I solve so I like problem solving actually I think that's part of more more than fashion Um, and and I think that um, uh, in a way that you often see problems when you're traveling myself even you know I'm trying to Schlepp, you know, we have one of our best-selling um, bags. It's called an in-flight bag, which um, mm-hmm. a lot of my products have come from traveling. So that was, you know, the fact that you have to take everything out of your bag and you have to put them into clear plastic bags, which seems ludicrous. So we designed a bag called the in-flight bag where one side of it says takeoff and the other says touchdown. And in one side, you've got everything you need for takeoff. It might be your moisturizer, your socks, your you know, earphones, whatever it might be. And then there's touchdown. It might be your, you know, toothbrush, whatever it is. And we designed that for that. It's become one of our best-selling bags. And likewise, we have a range of what we call loose pockets, which are essentially an idea that came from travel because you go to the airport and you draw out, you know, Japanese yen and then, you know, you go to Japan and then you've got all the receipts from your trip, which you need to kind of come back with to all your sort of expenses. So I needed these little pockets. So one for yen, so I could not mix it with pounds. Two, you know, my receipts for work. Three, my receipts for home. Um, so it's just all very organized. And um, 
those sorts of travel needs often tend to translate very well to the customer because I'm sure they have all the same. I'm picturing myself in the airport. I was literally just saying to my husband how I am just um, a perpetual dropper. I'm a, a frantic mess whenever I'm in transit, whether it's in an airport or at a train station, shoving my phone in my pocket, then thinking that I've lost it. I, this sounds like the kind of bag that we all need. Well, also, funny enough, there's another, I mean, there's several things. So the pimp your phone range we did simply for that because, you know, we all need our phone in our hand and yet we shouldn't really give a whole hand to a phone. There's other more thing, things we need to, to do with our hand. So we developed this pimp your phone range, which so you can wear it like a bag, basically. It's got a shoulder stretch right across body and you can pick up your phone and order your taxi and pay for something, but then you just drop it and it's just hanging around your your body. Um, equally, we have this range called the labelled collection, which is... Um, came out of the, the, the fact that I was traveling so much at one point that I just used to forget things and it just became a prompt. So there's a little wash bag that says cables and chargers and in it, I just pre-pack everything I need when I travel and I don't touch it. I keep that set done. So I know if I'm running out of the door, I just grab that and I won't get to my hotel room in, in Hong Kong and realize I don't have my laptop charger. Such a good idea. I mean, is that in contrast to a lot of the other prominent kind of ham- handbag designers? Do they think about practicalities would you say in the same way that you you do as a business well it's hard to sort of comment on on other people but I know that I'm passionate about things working as for me things working is the biggest luxury what I'm not passionate about is um, brand for the sake of brand that doesn't interest me I don't need a I don't need the sort of or I don't like the sort of bags for status or bags for look at me I'm so wealthy because I think there's an awful lot of that in sort of um you know third world development and those sort of you know countries that have sort of come up over my sort of working career and, and it's been very much about status look look at me I've got the car and I've got the bag and I've got this and actually that doesn't interest me what I like is things that are more discreet and that actually work that gives me real pleasure in the way that your phone is a complete luxury it does everything it's your photo album it's your it's your wallet it's your you know it's it's your diary it's all the things we used to have in our handbag like your camera all rolled into one and what a luxury that is that it's so light and small and so brilliant so for me that that's what's exciting not not look at me I'm rich and look at me I'm wearing this brand that doesn't it's not very exciting. Mm. So moving on to chapter four, that is your all-time favourite destination, always a hard one to pick. So I actually chose Mustique, which sounds very um, glamorous and, and mad. I have a very long, well, if I went there, and I went there also then on my honeymoon, um, and it's a place I've known for, I've been going for 20-something years, um, and so I've sort of really watched it change and develop. You know, we used to help, um, when there was a tarmacking the roads and you know some of the uh, the wildlife watching and you know we, we really know that island really well um, and have been going for a very long time so it's a place that we we love we love mostly when it's not sort of fashionable time you know Christmas is, is very very busy it's nicest I think in like May and November when you know you have lunch with the doctor and the builder and you know sort of people on the island have been there for a very long time so all those characters are very dear to to us as a family um, and it's just such a special place. It feels so remote. It's so beautiful. It's so untouched. You feel so incredibly safe. And it's funny because naturally, I wouldn't actually love, if you like, a gated community that's not entirely real, actually. But in a funny way, it's because um, we've been going there for so long. It just you feel sort of part of an island and 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 their life a bit. And they're very very special people. Um, for instance, Vincent, um, the neighbouring island. Um, so yeah, it's a very special place to us. So that would probably be there. And there's there's a there's so many lovely houses rather than a hotel. So so many houses that you can rent. And so, I mean, it literally is like being in your own private hotel. Um, so it's pretty special. We've been going for literally like 20, 26 years, I think, something like that. So you're part of the, the family there. 
really. Well, I don't know. I mean, we've said we're going a long time, but we just know know all the characters and are just very fond of, of it and what it stands for. So, so um, it's certainly um, my family feel it's very much in the in the in the hearts, if you like, mm-hmm. special place. Is Mustique a place that the kind of ordinary tourist could go? Yeah, absolutely. So you, there's a hotel there called the Cotton House, which is a lovely hotel, um, and you can stay there. Uh, you fly to either St Lucia or Barbados, normally from from London, and then take a small plane on. It's always a bit terrifying when you arrive at five o'clock and you see huge storm clouds. And you, it's always a bit frightening, but almost the adrenaline makes it only greater when you get there. Um, but no, you absolutely can, and you can rent a house. Yeah, for sure. Lovely. And and you get around on the island. There aren't cars on the island, are there? No, there are no. Well, there are some cars actually, but mostly people get around in what they call mules, which are like little um, little golf carts, really. So everyone drives like little golf carts. So I mean, the lovely thing is that there's sort of no worry about parking. There's no restaurants, one restaurant, two restaurants, but pretty much everyone eats in houses, and it's, it's treated like a big house party in a funny way. So you know, if you have a, if you were to give a sort of Christmas party, you'd probably invite everyone on the island. It's, it's very much just a hangover from Princess Margaret days in that way. So it's very sort of inclusive. Um, and what's lovely about it is it's a safe place for the kids. So, you know, they might go out to the bar and if they have, you know, one too many rum punches, there's someone's sister or brother, or it's a very safe place to grow up actually in that way. Um, mm. and, um, and, you know, unlike the sort of nightclubs in London. So it was really lovely for the kids. How wonderful. What a special place to go. So how about a favorite hotel? I imagine that you've stayed in many, many hotels throughout your career. Is there one that really stands out? Um, and there's so many lovely hotels and normally I like the sort of smaller ones but actually one I think that really is um, special to me even though it's not hidden particularly but is the Park Hyatt in Tokyo uh, which oh. is actually the Lost in Translation the hotel um, mm-hmm. although I, I knew it before the film but it's um, it, it's on the 40th floor of this, this Tokyo gas tower I think it's called um, which is a bit terrifying after the, uh, the tsunami and the earthquakes there but it is the most brilliant hotel. Really, you just feel that you are literally in another world, um, partly because you're so high. Um, but it feels incredibly Japanese. Um, and just just everything about it is just very it's perfect. It's not it's not annoyingly fussy. It's just brilliant. Um, and I think the spa on the, the top floor on the pool is probably one of the nicest places to um, to, to hang out if you, if you ever, which I rarely do, have a half a day off in, in, in Japan. Um, so that's a pretty spoiling hotel and, and really just they just get it absolutely right. Oh, sounds brilliant. Do you think that that is what Sofia Coppola saw in the Park Hyatt? Do you think that out of the different hotels that I imagine you have visited and seen in Tokyo, that there is something in particular about the Park Hyatt that makes it stand out? It's had that lovely feeling when you have a good hotel. It just is so, it feels spoiling, actually. Um, everything about it is just really well done. So maybe, I think also, it's so high up, that combined with jet lag does make you feel quite quite sort of in another world. I mean, equally, they're, they're very discombobulated. I think there are some incredible other hotels um, that I've stayed in through throughout different parts of Japan, including some of the onsens and some of the you know, those amazing sort of spas where, it's a very different experience for a Brit, you know, where you don't know whether you should be in a bathing costume or shouldn't be in a bathing costume, whether you should shower before you get in or not shower, you know, shoes and on, off, kneel, sit. You know, it's, it's sort of, there's some, lots of so many funny traditions and and and, uh, and and to the point of sort of being uncomfortable because you don't know what to do, that's really appealing for me. So, I mean, I suppose that the, the, the Park Guard is a sort of an international hotel but done in a beautiful Japanese way. If you wanted a really Japanese experience, there's some also incredible hotels uh, where you know you really are sort of tatami mats, and 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 that would also be completely fantastic as well. But Park Hyatt is pretty pretty brilliant. Oh wow, one for the hit list. 
So a common theme then in some of your most like humorous designs that I love is food. I'm thinking of like the iconic Walker's crisp clutch bag and looking online now, the sequin totes with after eight chocolates and marmite and ketchup on, which I just absolutely adore. So I, I wondered, are you a foodie? Is that the reason that these were created what was the inspiration behind them? I can't cook for toffee, actually. I literally can't even boil an egg, but I am a foodie in the sense that I, I love good food. Um, yeah. And and I like that humour, that combination of craftsmanship and humour. I don't think it, you can just have craftsmanship or you can just have humour. And for me, they're better when you combine the two. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly just because I think that, you know, frankly, um, you know, you're not saving lives with fashion. So it needs to kind of make you feel good and confident and, and hopefully make you smile. So that's something that's always appealed to me so so that's been kind of key um i think that um you know food is obviously though a a, a big pull on, on on travel um and um i mean not so many amazing food experiences i was thinking of one when we took the kids to tokyo once actually and in fact just after the tsunami so it was quite a particular time um mm. and uh and in fact i think we were the only westerners on the plane no one was going out it was, it was actually Kind of quite scary um but we went every restaurant we went to just was so amazing because they were so excited that we'd gone and especially with our children yeah. Um, yeah. and there was one red snapper restaurant i don't know now but it only served red snapper typical japanese um and this man with these huge chops that's just picked all the bones out and the children were just glued and fascinated and he then mixed this warm red snapper meat into the rice and the children still say it's the best thing they've ever eaten <laughs> you know oh, wow. so many incredible meals in japan i mean just incredible meals that sounds so Japanese in the sense that you're saying that the restaurant only serves red snapper. I mean, how specific, but I love that, that they hone in on one specific thing and they get it to perfection. I think anything that's suspicious, even if it's a light bulb shop is exciting. That's always been something that really appeals to me. So, um, so that, you know, that's where Japan is incredible really. And I think that, you know, they do one thing really well, whereas so often, unfortunately in the UK, everyone tries to do everything and they do it badly, much better to, to, to mean what you do, I think. And I think that's important in design as well. Um, so, um, so yes, that, that food is, is huge um, for me. And, um, and as you say, also a source of um, fun for design. So chapter six then is your worst travel experience. Is there a place that you remember for the wrong reasons? Um, I mean, so many bad experiences. The half the fun of travel is that is the, the bad. You talk more about the bad and laugh about the afters and the good. <laughs> yeah. I, I think as a general, rather than citing any particular place, the thing that people get so wrong is when they try and do that service, they think is tick box luxury, you know, so you arrive into the reception and they try and give you a welcome drink. In fact, all you want to do is get to your room and have a shower. You know, you're jet lagged, you're tired. Um, or when they give you extensive tours of your room and, and you're just like, please, I just want to kind of climb into bed. I think it's just so often about actually reading your client um, and not doing what they think is just ticking boxes and, you know, this is the luxury experience. And so I think that the element of, of being a bit bespoke uh, and also, you know, just not making it sort of luxury for the sake of it when actually it's not what people want. So I think it's a real, real wake-up call to, to hotels to actually just read read the person that's arriving when you've just done a 24-hour journey you don't want a welcome cocktail and a sort of extensive tour of every light fitting. You just want to be given <laughs> cold drink, the keys to your room and, and you know, the absolute basics with someone, you know, coming back if you need them. Um, so all those little things are just really important, I think. And um, often that, that, that's the only bit I, I, I'm a pretty relaxed traveller, but it's the only bit where I can slightly, you feel trapped, you know, in some welcome ritual that I just don't want. <laughs> um, and that's not a good feeling. So, um, so anyway, that sounds very spoiled, but do you know what I mean? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes, I do know what you mean. I do know what you mean. Well, I can't believe that we're on to the final chapter of your travel diaries, Anya. 
Chapter seven is the destination that is at the top of your travel bucket list. I mean, you've already taken us on a journey around some of the most beautiful places in the world. Where is left for you to discover? Problem is, I've got such a long list, so I can't really give you one. Um, Patagonia, Ethiopia, the sunken churches, Beirut. I haven't been to Egypt. I haven't been to India. I believe that. So that's all to come. Um, so hopefully. Um, so I just, but I also don't want to do any of those in a real hurry. Um, so I, I kind of want to take some time. So I guess that's why they've slipped down the list to the bottom. The problem is I love traveling and this, I just feel I learn so much. So I've got a very long list of places I want to go to. That's a very hearty list. But yeah, and it doesn't stop there and it goes on and I won't bore you, but there's, there's so many places I want to visit. Um, and it's, but it takes the time to, to do interesting travel. I think you've got to get off the beaten track and that just takes time to sort of mm. wind yourself down to that headset and to um you know i mean but it's the thing that makes me the happiest i will never i think the happiest time in my life of a few maybe but one of them that's memorable is is being on inlay lake in myanmar in burma and it was the end of the day and we were on these long sort of cigarette james bond kind of boats um very simple local boats and lake inlay is like sort of venice of the east it's incredible with all these floating agriculture floating villages i mean it's just mind-blowing and we'd have this incredible day even having lunch at a Burmese um, cat <laughs> it's a rather amazing heritage house it's called incredible food and they hit this where they started Burmese cats and so they had about 60 Burmese cats which is kind of fascinating uh. and at the end of the day with the sort of sun on my face and I had to sort of I was reading a book on this boat with all my kids and I just thought actually if I die now I die happy do you know what I mean so I think for me these sorts of trips do that they are you know kind of what it's about really everything else is is working towards that I think Wonderful. Oh, thank you so much for your time. Anya, those were your travel diaries. Such a pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Anya Hindmarch, an inspiring, powerful woman. And speaking of inspiring women, stay tuned until the end of the episode when I'm going to be joined by my mum to discover some of the women in our family tree. Thank you so much for listening today. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe on your podcast app so that you're updated with a new episode each week. And if you can't wait till next week or if you're new to the podcast, remember there's the first three seasons to catch up on from Michael Palin and Rick Stein to Dev Patel, Poppy Delavine and Richard Branson. To find out who's joining me next week, come and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. I would love to hear from you. I love reading all of your messages and share your own travel diaries using the hashtag the travel diaries i'll be resharing your hidden gems your recommendations and all-time favorites on my instagram and here on the podcast later in the season thanks again for listening and i'll be back next week mum welcome to the podcast your podcast debut thank you holly for having me very pleased to be here so i'm really excited because we've been waiting to open up this email from ancestry they're supporting the podcast at the moment and they've been looking back into our heritage tracing our family story with our family tree that's so exciting i've never done that isn't it so so cool to go back tell me well the records on ancestry are more detailed than you think so you don't just build a family tree you can discover stories about people who are amazing i know right we can find out things they did and and where they worked. Yeah, exactly. As examples of the kind of things that anyone can find out, which I actually didn't really realize you could do. So I'm really excited to have a look and see 
what they have found for us. And in particular, they've given us some stories about powerful women in mm-hmm. our family tree because women are often much harder to trace. That's unusual. It usually goes down the male line and what they're jobs are rather than looking at the women exactly so i'm really thrilled that we've got some stories about the women in our family here so i'll tell you first about your side mum and that is about my great 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 grandmother my four times great grandmother god that goes back a long time how did they find that yeah what date is that what date is that well she passed away in 1825 oh my goodness so she was born in the 1700s oh my goodness and her name was letitia fisher childerhouse that's an incredible name letitia fisher i knew we had the childerhouse name in the family i didn't know we had any letitia's Ancestry have told me that Letitia had already given birth to seven children, seven children when her husband passed away in 1825. She lost one child at age two, but still had six children aged one through 14 to care for. She never remarried, but continued to work the farm for the rest of her life. She was a farmer. And nine years before her death in 1870, a census entry tells us that at age 72, she was a farmer with 30 acres employing one man and one boy. And look, they've sent us some photos of the census entry here. Look at that. Oh, my goodness. Look at that handwriting. Beautiful handwriting. Isn't that amazing? And they've also sent information about my two times great grandmother Kezia and I'll tell you I'll tell you a bit about that later but I also wanted to tell you about some information they found on dad's side about my great grandmother and what they found for her is a uh, an article about her wedding that's wedding where where was that her wedding in brooklyn when in 1906 so this was an an article that they managed to somehow dig out of the brooklyn daily eagle archives dad's from brooklyn about her wedding to my great-grandfather so we've got the actual look here they must have been quite important in the community to be covered in the papers oh yeah i guess so i mean it's quite interesting they've they've drawn out the kind of story all around their lives as well which is equally interesting but i just wanted to read you a little bit about about her wedding it says here that she wore a princess gown of white satin trimmed with baby irish lace and the groom presented the bride with a diamond bracelet as a gift at the wedding wow that's That's, incredible yeah lucky her and uh, it took place at this mansion in Brooklyn look and they even sent a photo of the mansion itself oh my goodness Brooklyn in 1900 what 19 1906 wow beautiful place yeah so those are just a few of the important women in our family tree well thank you Ancestry for uncovering some of this information for me it's been the highlight of my uh this lockdown to for us to kind of start reading about this shall we start reading through the rest of the stories i think we should okay that's our afternoon sorted visit ancestry.co.uk to discover your family's stories thanks mum you're welcome Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels 
even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers? just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.